Amen. You may be seated this morning. On Sunday mornings, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel, so we're going to continue to do that this morning. So we'll be in chapter 13 of John's Gospel. So if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 13, we're going to cover verses 1 through 17. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, there's a few somewhere around these boxes on the front platform, but just raise your hand. And Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can study God's Word with us. Again, the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 will be our text here this morning as we get into our study. It's been a wonderful study, and um, it's looking forward to this section. Remember that from John chapter 13 through chapter 17, we are coming to a section of this gospel that is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And the reason that it's called that is because Jesus is having a Passover meal with his disciples, and it would be his last meal before um, he goes to the cross, and it's his last meal with his disciples, thus it's called the Last Supper. And as he is with his disciples in that upper room, at this meal, we're going to see that Jesus is going to arise from dinner, and he will first wash the disciples' feet, and then he's going to give this wonderful and very beloved discourse to his disciples. This is Jesus' farewell message to them. So let's pray before we get into our study. Father, we ask that you bless this time as once again we open up your word, as we study your word. And I pray that as we go through this discourse over the next few weeks, that it would touch our hearts and that we would listen to the words of our Lord and that it would be worked out in our lives. And so, Father, thank you for this time. I pray that we be settled into our seats, our ears open to you, our hearts teachable before you. And, Lord, we look forward to the things that you want to say to us. And may we just be reminded once again of your incredible love and provision for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So you recall that in chapter 12 that we were in the last couple of weeks, we saw that Jesus came into Jerusalem during the Passover week. And he was only a few days from going to the cross as the Passover Lamb of God that will die for the sins of the world. Now as we go into John chapter 13, he's only a few hours from going to the cross. And I do find it interesting that John, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God to write his gospel, that a large section of his gospel, almost a quarter of this gospel, is dedicated to this teaching that is found nowhere else in the other gospels, this, this upper room discourse. And I believe that one of the reasons that so much is recorded in this gospel, the last teaching of Jesus to his disciples, is because we're going to see that probably it's one of the greatest and, and most important teachings that Jesus gives. Now, you recall that as we end at chapter 12, that Jesus addressed the nation for the last time. His public ministry has come to a close. The nation, for the most part, has rejected him. The religious leaders are determined that we must arrest Jesus, and that's what they're going to do with the help of Judas the betrayer. And they're going to put him on trial. He will go through a series of trials that we will see as we travel through John's gospel, and then eventually he's going to be put to death. 
And Jesus, knowing that his death is just a matter of hours, that when the sun comes up, that he would have already begun to take on the cup of suffering and, and eventually his death on that Roman cross on a place that was right outside of Jerusalem, to the north of the city, right outside the Damascus Gate. It was the top of Mount Moriah. It was called Calvary or Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And Jesus now just uh, in his last moments with his disciples, in these quiet moments, surround himself with those who have traveled with him for three years or over three years, and he shares his heart with them. And he's going to talk to them about servanthood, that we're going to see that today. But also, in this discourse, he's going to be talking to them about love. He's going to be talking to them about abiding in him, and then the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin to look at this discourse as we read in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus knows that his hour has come. His mind is filled with what he knows is ahead for him in the next few hours. And the hour had come for him to go to the cross and at this time, we see that his heart is filled with love for the disciples. And it states here in verse 1 that he loved them to the end. I have that underlined in my Bible. I think it's worth us considering here this morning. And we know that he would prove his love for them who belonged to him as he would go to the cross for them. And he proved his love for you and for me by going to the cross as well. And I like what it says that he loved them to the end. As we do look at that and as we know that here the disciples walking with Jesus, as I said, for the last three and a half years. And we see in this upper room discourse that these disciples are in a sense really clueless about what's going on. Jesus has been talking to them for particularly the last six months prior to this, ever since Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of the country when Peter gave his confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, that we know that Jesus then said, okay, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. And Peter said, not so, Lord. And of course, Peter was rebuked. But Jesus, on their way from Caesarea Philippi, as they would make their way to Jerusalem, we know that it was Jesus that was telling them about his death and his resurrection. But yet here they don't get it. They're, they're still confused. Um, this night they're going to run away, as he's going to say. Peter's going to deny them. They express their confusion by saying, Lord, where are you going? As Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come right now. Where are you going, and, and how do we know the way, and show us the Father? This really, as I have said, is graduation night for these guys. But yet, they, they are very troubled and very confused, and their hearts are full of sorrow. And, and we know that he's talking to them about, one of you is going to betray me. And they are saying, is it I, is it me? And Peter, you're going to deny me. So even through all of that, he loved them to the end, and he never stopped loving them. And I pray that that's a great encouragement to all of us that are here this morning because he will never stop loving you. Because I know in my own life, and perhaps you can feel this way, that I think, Lord, I'm so clueless at times. And Lord, I can be troubled. I can be, you know, full of anxiety because I'm not 
trusting and resting in your promises that you give to me. And Lord, I, I don't know everything that's taken place and I blow it, but his love continues and his love continues with you as well and he will continue to love us to the end. He will never stop loving you. So that's a great encouragement right off the bat as we get into this discourse. And verse 2, and supper being in it, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. So Satan is tempting Judas in his heart to betray Jesus. And later we will see in the chapter in verse uh, 27 that uh, Satan will actually enter into Judas and Jesus knows that the father has given all things into his hand. Jesus knew where he was going. Jesus knew where he had come from. He wasn't confused at this time. He isn't wondering what's going to happen. He's not thinking, boy, the religious leaders are sure upset at me. I, I hope they don't get me. None of that is going on. Remember that Jesus, through this gospel, has been saying, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. And now he's saying, my hour has come. And last week we saw Jesus say, after talking about his death, that for this very purpose I came to this hour. I'm going to be lifted up, speaking of the death on the cross. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He knew that he was going to be crucified. That's the reason why he came to this world. Because it's the only hope for you and for me for forgiveness of sin. And he talked about his resurrection. He never talked about his crucifixion without also talking about his resurrection. And he would talk about that he was going back to the Father. So Jesus, at that last supper, verse 4, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus is going to give this exhortation this lesson concerning being a servant. But before Jesus gives this exhortation to serve, he gives an example of what it means to be a servant. And you see, that is the way of the Lord. He not only does he tell and instruct his disciples what to do, but he was an example on how to do it. He's teaching them about servanthood. He was the servant of all, as we know. He will teach them on love. And he's going to give that example of ultimate love and sacrifice by going to the cross. And before he teaches them about servanthood, he touches them by washing their feet. And I have found that people need to be touched and loved before they can be taught and discipled. And Jesus arises and he lays aside his outer garment that it is... He takes off that robe that he was wearing and he girds himself with a towel, which would act as sort of a, as an apron. He, he would use it to wipe their feet after washing their feet. And remember that in this day, there's no paved roads. Today, if we take a walk down the street or, or you know, take a jog down the street, we put on our nice tennis shoes and, and we go down the, the street and we come back, our feet aren't dirty. You know? Even if we run on trails and stuff, you know, we 
have nice trails and things like that. Well, back in this day, all the roads were just trails or uh, they were roads that uh, weren't paved. There was a few stone uh, you know, roads and stuff. But for the most part, if you're traveling around, you wore sandals and you would be on those roads and it's this way in, in a lot of parts of the world and third world countries and your feet got re- really dirty. I mean, it, when it rained, it was muddy and there are animals on the roads and there's, you know, uh, manure on the road and things like that. So as your feet got very, very dirty and in this time, in this culture 2,000 years ago, It was customary if you had somebody over to really be hospitable, and that was important, that what you would do is you would provide for them to be able to wash their feet. And if the host could, he would provide a servant. He would provide a slave if he had slaves to do that foot washing. And it would be the one that was considered to be the lowest slave that would do the foot washing. If a slave wasn't in a home, then your children... And usually the younger, the least of the children, would do the foot washing. Now think about this. When we think about that somebody comes over, can you imagine somebody comes over to your house, they've been traveling on dirt roads, their feet are all dirty and dusty and and whatever else is on their feet that they stepped in, that all of a sudden you're providing a servant or one of the kids to wash their feet. And that was a show of hospitality. And here is Jesus right before his death. This is really amazing when you consider it. The creator of the universe. God in human flesh take in the position of the lowest, humblest slave. He arose from supper. He laid aside his garment. He girded himself with the towel and washed the disciples' feet. And it just really impacts more as I read Philippians chapter 2 that tells us that he made himself, Jesus, of no reputation, but taken on the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So Paul would go on to write in Philippians chapter 2, and we don't want to miss that. He says, then let this mind which was also in Christ Jesus being you. You should have this mentality of making yourself a no reputation, but humbling yourself, being obedient to the Lord, being a servant. And I do also find it interesting that as you look at the four different Gospels, remember that the four different Gospels, as, as they're writing the Gospel writers about the ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that they have different audience that they're really trying to uh, focus in on. For example, Matthew. Matthew was writing to the Jews. He was writing to show that Jesus is the coming Messiah. And that's why when you go through Matthew's gospel, there's a lot of Old Testament scripture that is there that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. It was fulfilled by Isaiah the prophet. You read a lot of that because he's writing to show that Jesus is the King of Kings, that he's the Messiah. Now, when you get to Luke's gospel, remember Luke was Greek. He wasn't one of the disciples. He was Greek. He wrote uh, Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, which is 25% of the New Testament. And Luke wrote to show us that Jesus is the perfect man. The Greeks, you know, 2,000 years ago were into the perfect man and intellect and philosophy and, and all of this. 
we know that Mark, he would write, Mark who was one that traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, uh, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, John Mark was his name, that he wrote to show that Jesus was the perfect servant and that he was the servant of all. And so I would think that this, this here recording of the foot washing that Jesus would do would be in Mark's Gospel, showing us that he's the servant of all. But as I think about this, I think that perhaps that the Spirit would have John write about it because John's gospel was written to show us that Jesus is God, right? That he's divine. We've seen the, the I am statements of Jesus, that I am the bread of life, that I am the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the vine. All these things that, that we have seen, the, the statements of deity, before Abraham was I am, and the religious leaders picked up rocks to stone Jesus because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be God. Why do you stone me for what works they said not for any works but you being a man make yourself out to be God as we saw in John chapter 10 and I think that as we consider that here is Jesus the son of God divine uh, come from God that John showing that and then showing that he takes on the form of the lowest slave it really leaves us humble doesn't it the disciples on this night, you got to remember, according to Luke chapter 22, they had been disputing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus had already told them, clear up in the Galilee region, that if you want to be the greatest, then you need to be the servant of all. And now he gives them a great example on this night about serving, and he serves all of them right before his death, and he even serves Judas. He's only hours away from the cross. He isn't thinking about himself, but he's thinking about others. He's washing feet. Truly, he is loving them to the end. And then something to consider before we move on from these two verses that we read. What we see here is an illustration of what Jesus did for you and for me. In other words, verse 4, he rose up. And we know that Jesus, that he rose up from his heavenly throne. Second of all, Jesus laid aside his garments, as we read. And Jesus would lay aside his glory, his garments of, of glory as he became like us. And then thirdly, Jesus took a towel and he girded himself. And Jesus would become a man, taken on the form of a servant. And then fourthly, for you who are just jotting down these notes very quickly, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And we know that Jesus, that we are washed by the blood of Jesus as he hung on that cross, as he shed his blood for you and for me. And we are forgiven of sin. And John later on in his epistle would write, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, cleansing us from the penalty and the guilt of sin. And then fifthly, verse 12, we're going to read that, that after this foot washing, that he would sit down. And after Jesus died for us and he rose from the grave three days later, he is at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for you and for me.
So it's really a beautiful picture of us being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and how Jesus died for us, and He sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and for me as well. But let's continue in verse 6. Then He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You got to love Peter, right? Sometimes he says very profound things. And bless his heart here. He gives this protest. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. You shall never. And that word in the original language in the Greek means not for eternity, not ever. Lord, you will never, not for eternity, wash my feet. Now, there are some commentators and scholars believe that Peter would perhaps be seated at the far end of the table. Now, the tables back then, and as you see many pictures of the Last Supper, of course, but the table would be low to the ground. It sat low, and you would kind of recline around the table. You would lean upon, you know, your arm or you had, you know, uh, something to prop you up. Uh, they had pillows at times. They kind of just did that. It's different than you and I to sit at a dining room table with nice chairs. They weren't sitting in chairs. They were just kind of sitting on the floor reclining. They were around this U-shaped table probably, and they were low to the ground. And as they were doing this, perhaps Peter the last one that the Lord comes to, uh, he's at the far end of the table. And the Lord comes to wash his feet, and he begins to protest. Not ever are you going to wash my feet. Now, why was he protesting? Well, we don't know for sure, but there are some that speculate that perhaps Peter thought, you guys, you other disciples, you missed the point by letting Jesus wash your feet. He wants us to protest and for us to proclaim that he's too great and, and we're too unworthy. So Peter makes this dramatic statement, and if that's what he was thinking, then we know that he was wrong because Jesus is going to correct him as we continue reading here. But I think that probably Peter here, clearly he felt maybe uncomfortable with having Jesus perform such a humble act of service on him. Lord, you're washing my feet, you'll never wash my feet. It would be kind of like if you went over to dinner to somebody of of prominence and prestige and and you had dinner and all of a sudden they got up and they began to to say you know take your shoes off and want to wash your feet uh, maybe if you went to the white house uh, you know whether you like the president or not but his position you know his authority if you went there for dinner and all of a sudden the president says i'm gonna wash your feet you kind of feel a little weird, wouldn't you? A little uncomfortable. And I think maybe perhaps that's what Peter is feeling at this time. And so Jesus answered Peter by saying, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will. And I believe that Peter would. Because it would be a few decades later when Peter was writing his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He's writing to the Christians about humility. And he writes that all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. More literally, Peter wrote, wrap the apron of humility around yourself. And I'm sure that as Peter wrote that, that I think that perhaps that he was thinking about this night, that Jesus would wrap that towel around his waist and he humbled himself and washing their feet. 
And so Peter would write, wrap yourselves in humility and serve others. But at first he didn't understand. And the Lord said, later on you will. And he says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part of me. Peter, you need to let me do this. If anyone does not accept the cleansing power of Jesus, then they are not his. And just as we saw last week that John was quoting from Isaiah, talking about how the people would not believe in the Messiah. They would reject him. They would not receive him. People today say, I will not believe. I will not let the Lord wash me. I do not want to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They will have no part of him. They will have no part of heaven. Remember that it was Jesus that said that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So with Jesus here saying this to Peter, Peter now changes his mind. In verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Peter, he continued to, to miss the spiritual meaning. But he was certain of this. His desire to be a part of Jesus, to have fellowship with him. Hey, wash my hands and my head too. And Peter the Lord says, you've been bathed, you've been washed, you just have dirty feet. You need to have your feet washed. We who are believers, we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven. We're saved, we belong to him, praise God. Paul, when he was writing that pastoral epistle to Titus in chapter 3, would write, But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior towards men appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When we gave our hearts to Jesus, we came to him in faith, we were born again by the Spirit of God. We got the whole bath. Peter, you're clean. Not all of you guys, because there is one who is of the devil. Of course, speaking of Judas, he's not clean. But Peter, you don't need a bath. You are clean, except your feet need to be washed. Your feet need to be washed. As we journey through this life, as we journey on this side of eternity, in this world, our feet get dirty, don't they? Don't you just feel it? Just the filth and the manure and the dirt and the dust of the world begins to cling to me. And I need to be cleansed. I need to be cleansed by the Word of God. David, who I think probably wrote Psalm 119, in verses 9 through 11, he would write, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, Husbands, you're to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself to her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Jesus in just a few moments is in this discourse is going to tell his disciples that you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Every time I come to the word of God and read it, it washes me. As we come into this place this morning, 
as we take in the word in our hearts and our own devotions. And I pray that when we leave this place, after our devotions with the Lord, that we're different, that we've been washed, that we've been cleansed, because the word of God will have an effect on us, won't it? It will wash us. There's a cleansing that takes place, a conviction that takes place. Oh, Lord, I hear your word. And, Lord, I've been uh, affected by just the dust and the dirt of the world. Don't you come home sometimes and you just feel just dusty and, you know, dirty because of all the voices that are out there and things that are out there? That's why it's so important that we continue in the Word of God, that we have those devotions, that we read the Word of God. Lord, cleanse me, wash me, help me to walk in obedience to you. As we come in, there's a cleansing, and it's a wonderful work of the Lord. Continue to grow in his word. But as you hear the, the words and the philosophy and the ways of the world, you're just going to go away saying, yuck. I just, uh, what I walked through today, it's just like, Lord, help me now. Help me to wash me with the word of God that I might take it in, and there's a cleansing that takes place. Well, we continue to read. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, he sat down again. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? So it is interesting, isn't it, that Jesus directly asked these guys, do you guys know what I've done? Uh, do you know uh, what I've just done in this act of washing your feet? He wants to make sure that they understand why he did this because it's a, a very important lesson that he wants them and us to understand. So apparently, at least it's not recorded, none of the guys answered him. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, uh, for so I am. If I then, um, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. You guys call me, you know, teacher and Lord, and you do well in that. But you know what makes Jesus the great teacher? He never asked his disciples to do something that he wasn't willing to do. He says that I have done this as an example that you should do. And Jesus is talking more about, you know, that we should have foot washing services every Holy Week. That's fine if there are those who want to do that. But remember the attitude of the disciples at this time that they were arguing, again, according to the synoptic Gospels, and had been arguing, you know, from all the way up in Galilee, all the way to Jerusalem, and even on this night, who was the greatest? Who's the greatest? We know that James and John had their mother come and ask Jesus, hey, can my sons sit on your right and on your left? And the other disciples were upset, and I think that they were upset that John's mother won and asked because they didn't think about it first. Hey, I wish I would have got in and, and jockeyed for position and all of this. And, and so here they're arguing about all that. I think maybe they had a resume ready to pull out, you know, and give to Jesus and say, I'm the greatest. I should be in a great position when you come into your kingdom. And all of this has taken place. And they needed to know what the kingdom of God truly was about. It was about servanthood and humility Jesus, the one who is the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings, the creator of all things, rose from supper and he washed their feet. And then in a few hours, he's going to allow himself to be arrested. He'll go through tremendous suffering and pain and eventually death. 
He's the ultimate example of being the servant of all and of loving all. I believe that the greatest teachers are the ones that are examples in what they teach. And mom and dads, you will give mixed messages to your kids if you tell your kids to do one thing and to live one way and you're not doing it. If you tell your kids how it is that you can help people and serve people and how you can minister to them and you're not doing it. And I know that in my ministry here that I've had wonderful examples of those who are servants of humility and it blesses me. In my ministry, I've had wonderful examples of pastors that were just men of God that were humble before the Lord that made themselves of no reputation, that served others. Uh, the late Pastor Chuck Smith, who is my pastor, was such a wonderful example that for so many years of one who was committed to teaching the Word of God, but he was a servant, and I saw him do that. I learned from him. I remember going to pastor's conferences, and I'm one of the guys that, you know, I get up early, and, and uh, me and, and Bob Davis, we would leave early, and we'd get over to the sanctuary uh, for devotions, and, and we were always there kind of 45 minutes early with our coffee. That's just the way that we're kind of wired and guys that are up early. And there would be times where Pastor Chuck was in there picking up all the gum wrappers from you know, the guys that, that threw them on the ground the day before or on the chairs and they're vacuuming. So many times I saw that man just serving and serving in humility and others in my life, in my ministry that I've looked at and I can see that they were servants and it's such a tremendous blessing. So here is, is Jesus. He, these guys that that were arguing who's going to be the greatest. He knew that there was a competitive spirit in the disciples, and that can happen in ministry. There's this competition. There's this, you know, this nature in us. We want to be noticed. We want people to pat us on the back. We, we have all that that, you know, begins to rear its ugly head in us, and we need to be careful of it. How come my ministry, I want to have a bigger building than that pastor down the street. I want to have more people come. I want to be more popular. All these things, and it can be a little bit competitive if we continue in that mindset. And, and rather than just, you know, Lord, I want to just serve who you give me. I just want to love the people. And people ask me, particularly there have been so many people that are new to Calvary Chapel here, that what's your vision for Calvary Chapel is simply this, to make sure that you're the best loved, best fed sheep in Greeley, whoever God gives to me. So here they are. They're trying to figure out who's the, the greatest. They have this competitive spirit. And Jesus washing their feet would bring correction to their prideful mindset. And Jesus says to them after he washed their feet, don't you understand? Don't you guys get it? That what I have done to you, you need to understand that being a disciple of mine, you who will be engaged in ministry, that will begin just a few months after this, that it's washing feet and it's being a servant. Minister, that word literally means a servant. And I know that God calling me to be the senior pastor here 
that what that means is he's called me to be the servant of all and to be an example of a servant. And oftentimes what happens to ministers is the trap of the celebrity mentality can come to them rather than a servant's mentality. We like to use that term, you know, I'm a servant. But we don't always like to be treated like a servant. And we don't always like to take the place of a servant. In ancient Rome, a servant wasn't there when the master, you know, had guests and the servant was there to serve. The, the, the servant wasn't there to be the center of attention, was he? He's not there to get the glory. He's not there to be honored. He's there to serve, to be in the background ready at any given notice to do the task that is asked of him. And that's what being a servant is about, of no reputation and humility and just serving. So Jesus shows us that truly, as his disciples, that they were to serve, and you and I as his disciples, that were to have that servant mentality of washing feet, taking the lower place, to humbly serve others. But Jesus continues here as we finish this morning, most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. A servant is not above his master. So if Jesus came and was the servant of all, we are to humble ourselves and we are to be servants as well. That is not the mentality of the world, is it? You know that to be true. The mentality of the world and the voice of the world is that you are to have those who serve you. And if you want true happiness and true success in life, then you need to be served. And how many people serve you? And how many people you know, are coming to you and lording over others? It was Jesus that said to his disciples when he was talking to them about serving that it's the Gentiles that love to rule over others. It shall not be with you. And whoever desires to be great among you, again, shall be your servant. And whoever you desires to be first, shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom to many. You see it in Paul the Apostle in his life. I think about Paul the Apostle, particularly when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians. There are those so-called ministers that were coming in, and they were putting Paul down. And look at Paul. You know, his speech is contemptible. You know, he... he Look at his appearance. He's wearing these sweaty tent-making clothes. And, and these guys saw themselves as most eminent apostles. And Paul would call them false apostles and teachers. But they boasted in themselves. And, and the Corinthians really liked that. Hey, look at these guys. They have a reputation. They have a name. And they have, look at their appearance. Look at their speech and all of this. And Paul says that when we came to you, we came in all humility. Much fear and trembling. We didn't come with the wisdom of man, but we came in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how we came to you, and you know what manner of men we were, that we ministered and we gave the gospel, and, and Paul made tents, and he didn't want to take from them. He didn't want to stumble them, but he gave the, to them, and he loved them. And he would even say to that Corinthian church, that the more 
the less that you love me, or the more that I love you guys, the less that I am loved by you. And so Paul would give, and he would be that example as well. And Jesus is our ultimate example. But I want to close with this. Look at verse 17 where it says, Blessed are oh, or how happy are you if you do them. I don't think there's a single person that's in this room that says, I don't want to be happy. I just want to be miserable all my life. So here's some kingdom math for us. That humbleness plus holiness equals happiness. Will you write that down? That humbleness and holiness equals happiness. See, the world isn't going to tell you that. But God comes along and he says, I'm going to let you in on truth. That if you truly want to be blessed and happy in life, then you serve others. You walk in holiness. The world thinks, again, that happiness is others serving you. But joy will come and blessing will come when you serve others in the name of Christ. So I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with this. When was the last time, when was the last time that you served somebody? When was the last time that you really humbled yourself and you served somebody? That you took the lower position, you humbled yourself and you served somebody? I am blessed by this fellowship. There are so many servants that are here. And for you, maybe serving may be you're ministering and serving your family, your children, your elderly parents, and maybe serving in some part of the community or maybe serving here. But if you really want to experience that abundant life that Jesus has and that exciting Christian life that he desires for us to experience as we walk through this life, is that you humble yourself and you serve others and you're going to be happy. You're going to have joy. And you're going to be blessed in life as you just serve others and then you walk in holiness. And great will you be in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this important lesson that that we've learned as we've gone through your word. And Lord, um, so much in this discourse that we're going to see. But Lord, first of all, we do know that Jesus has said that, Peter, if you don't let me wash, you don't have any part of me. And and Lord, we do know that if we are not washed with the blood of Jesus Christ, that there is no hope of heaven, that there is no other sacrifice for sin. It is Jesus alone that went to the cross. And the, I just want to give that message. If there's anybody that is here in the sanctuary or out there in the coffee shop, that you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the gospel is this, that all of us, that we have been stained with sin. All of us have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't, you know, merit it. We can't gain the approval of heaven in our own energies, in our own righteousness. That's why Jesus came. Jesus, who came, the perfect Lamb of God, came and died for you specifically, for your sins, because he loves you. And he desires to save you. And it comes by as you recognize that you are a sinner in need of the Savior of the world, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very simple statement, but a very powerful statement. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to forgiveness of sin. There's no other way to be cleansed of your sin. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he went to that cross thinking about you, and he did it to prove his love for you. And all you need to do is come in faith. You need to turn direction. That's what the word repent means. Quit thinking the way that you're thinking that you can earn heaven. Quit going in the direction of the world and turn to Jesus. He loves you. He wants to forgive you and have a personal relationship with you. It's not about religion. It's about coming and surrendering all, just as we sang this morning to him. And he wants to bless your life as you humble yourself and ask him into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. And again, as we read, that if you have no part of Jesus, then there's no forgiveness of sin. You have no part of heaven. Today is the day of salvation. It's a free gift. Don't pass this up if this means anything to anyone here this morning. Today is the day of salvation. And right where you're sitting, you can ask Jesus into your heart. You pray, Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe that you went to Calvary's cross and you died for my sins. You cried out, it is finished. You paid the price, you did the work. You were buried and you rose again and you're alive, knocking on the door of my heart. And I now open up my heart. I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Oh, Jesus, be the, sit on the throne of my heart. Thank you for dying for me and for saving me. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. And I want you to do something. If you prayed that prayer this morning, and we do this at every service, we want to give people an opportunity to come to Christ. That if you prayed that prayer, and you've come to Christ this morning, will you just put your hand up and put it back down? You're making a statement that I am a believer now in Jesus Christ. Anybody at all, don't be afraid. And if you're out in a coffee shop, we got those that can minister to you. Just put your hand up and put it back down. Anybody at all, this service at this time. We're not going to prolong it, but just giving you an opportunity to make that statement of faith that I am confessing before men that I believe in Jesus. And I've made that decision today. Anybody at all? Okay. So, Father, I do pray that as your servants, as your disciples, that we would have hearts that are hearts that desire to serve others. Lord, to not be so concerned about being in the way of the world of reputation and prestige and all of this, but Lord, to humble ourselves and to serve others, those who are hurting, those who are around us, that Lord, need to to have their feet washed and touched and discipled. Lord, help us to have that servant's heart. 